0: To Identity Church Sunday morning message, where a sonship is revealed. Stay tuned at the end of this message to receive more information about resources available through Identity Church. Now grab your Bible, sit back, and enjoy a message from Identity Church that is already in progress. Wow. things on the words that uh, came out this morning. Uh, one was the a word from Jeremiah chapter one about giving you the authority to root out to plant, tear down. It's interesting because Jeremiah never uses that to its fullest ex- extent. And sometimes God will reveal to you what you have access to but your ability to surrender the power you have access to to the obedience of his voice is a big deal. You know, It's like Jeremiah could have done some major damage with the authority God gave him, and what Jeremiah does is lives in surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord. Just because just you can do a thing doesn't mean it's to be done. <laughs> uh, I tell you one other thing God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 It's really offensive. He says, I knew you before I formed you. Which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then what does God know? What he knew about you before you were even here. That's your identity. You're never going to change God's mind about you. He's not watching your behavior to see what he's going to think about you. He's not giving you the power to change his opinion about you. He says, I knew you before I formed you. And then it gets crazier. I didn't plan on talking about this. Let's just let's just throw down some heresy straight from the Word of God, that we just don't believe. It says, I knew you before I formed you, and I consecrated you before you were even born. Consecrated, set set apart. New Covenant language, you call that sanctification. It's saved, and then I am in a process of becoming sanctified. Therefore, I am in a process of being holy. Here's an Old Covenant revelation that God gave to a guy. I knew you before I formed you. And you were actually consecrated, set apart, sanctified before you were even born. Well, f- <laughs> think about that. <laughs> you want you want to you want to take it even farther than that? Then he says, he goes on to say, and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So think of how we we like to put everything in process. In other words, okay. I I have to introduce myself to God. And we say this prayer, and He, now, and I, He and I know each other. And then I have to surrender my life to be led by His Holy Spirit, and He leads me through a process where I am becoming holy. And if I can just keep that up long enough, then I will achieve some level of sanctification. And then if I can do that long enough, then I can quite possibly reach the upper echelon of vocational ministry where I have an anointing on my life to walk in an office or a gift that's recognized by the body. In the New Covenant, we preach that as a process and we put you into a machine called discipleship, hopefully to spit you out on the other end, being somewhere closer to that process end than you are right now. Let me go back to what God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1 under an old covenant, a worse covenant than we're under. Before you were even born, I knew you. Before you were even born, you were consecrated. Before you were even a fetus, you were anointed and appointed as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah's probably thinking like, wait, how did I get qualified for that? same way you got into Christ 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 by his doing you are in Christ Jesus I got news for you you know what you contribute to your salvation a big fat nothing you bring the dead carcass of your old self the lies you've believed about yourself that that stinking sense of self-worth, self-identity that you built up around a, a false identity that God never gave you. You bring all of that junk to the fire of the Holy Spirit. He burns it up. And you're left with nothing you can take credit for. That was a slam dunk, wasn't it? Nothing you can take credit for. On the word that was just given, maybe God has built something in us. 2 Corinthians, we give a scripture for that. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Paul said, 1 Corinthians says, Know you not? Puts it in the form of a question. In other words, do you guys not know that you're the temple of God? It says in 2 Corinthians 6 says, "We are the temple of the living God as God has said, I will dwell in not just with not just God being with you, not just Jesus hanging out with you. I will dwell in them not as a tent, not as a summer home, not as a weekend hangout, not as a place where God comes to, to you know, check out the, the guest house for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning. I will dwell in you as a Temple. What is a temple? It's a place specifically built for worship. Yeah, yeah. You're a temple. Yeah. Who says so? God. <laughs> I will dwell in them, and I will walk among them. I, I love this phrase. And they're borrowing. He's borrowing Old Testament language here, but he brings it into, into a new covenant context. Didn't mean my message yet. We're getting there. He brings it into a new covenant context when he says, "I will dwell in them and walk among them." Doesn't mean that he leaves you to go and hang out with somebody else for a while. It's it's his activity is not just confined to you. You're you're, you're like the nuclear a nuclear dynamo that you're like. You guys remember um, remember the Chernobyl thing, right? So in Chernobyl, uh, when when that reactor melted down, you couldn't see it. You couldn't, nothing in the air. If you came into that town from outside and you didn't know what had happened there, you'd be like, what's going on in this place? Why is like nobody here? You would think you stumbled across a treasure. I got an entire town to myself. Everybody's just left this place abandoned. You wouldn't know that there's a power lingering in the air that it literally seeped into every atom into the soil that if you hung around it long enough, it would affect you. That's a negative. But here's the way that the Holy Spirit works in you. You are a nuclear dynamo of glory, Right? And the fire of God takes precedence within you, you walk aware of what you carry. People around you may not be aware of what you contain, but if they just hang out long enough, something in them will start to change. So when the body gets together, I will walk among them. What's he saying? I'm going to connect them one to another. Dynamo to dynamo. We're going we're to create a power grid of glory by our relationships and connections because the kingdom is family. Amen? I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Right? I will be their God, and they will be my people. Why? Because we decided to be. Let me give you a last day's word from Hosea, from Hosea chapter 3, chapter 2 and chapter 3. The last part of Hosea chapter 2 and chapter 3 says this In the last days, God says, In the last days, I'm going to give you a last days message you probably never heard. In the last days, I will pour out compassion, grace, on people who haven't even earned it. And this, God goes on, and I will say to those people, you are my people. That's awesome. Declare that over everybody you know that's walking in blindness. God will say, in the last days, He's going to pour out such a grace on people who haven't even asked for it, haven't earned it, and He will say, you are my people. Here's the way they'll respond. Here's how they'll respond. They'll say, you are my God. And a nation says we will come trembling Hosea 3:5 a nation will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days when you think of trembling you think of fear running away and hiding this is an awe an awesome revelation of of the, the the fire of the holy spirit the glory of god the personhood of christ this this is a this is a revelation of the glory of the risen christ Christ in you the hope of glory this is a revelation that actually causes us to tremble sh- trembling want to get closer like like six cups of coffee trembling and wanting to get closer you're like you know elbowing people out of the way to get closer <laughs> right it's it's a desire. What, what is it? It's an invitation and a desire for intimacy that's awakened in the heart of the people of God. We'll walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Jump back, and this is where I want to go today. To Isaiah chapter 66. I've never preached out of Isaiah 66. Mary Baker texted me this morning, Charlie, with a word and confirmed what i felt like i wanted to share this morning i don't have a conclusion to this word so i'm going to read it expound on it invite the holy spirit to show up turn it back over to charlie and then he can preach if he wants whatever you want into your house so at least that's what i'm predicting is going to happen but i may be wrong I want to read a couple of verses out of Isaiah 66, then talk to you about it for a second. Isaiah 66, um, verse 2, the middle of verse 2, To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. When you think trembles at my word, I want you to think of this for a second. What was the word of God? The word of God is the most powerful force in the entire universe. It's more than sound. It's the force, but it's not a force, it's, a, it's him, it's Christ, okay? He's always been the word. It is the one in whom all things consist and he holds all things together. God spoke the first and last, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the final word has always been Jesus. And in Christ, all of the cosmos exists through the word of God. It's the most powerful force in the universe. When it says, who trembles at my word, it's not just hear it and have a response internally of trembling. Have you ever seen what happens when a particular frequency hits a particular physical object and that object starts to shake a little bit? That's what it's talking about here. I'm looking for somebody who is tuned into the frequency of the kingdom of God and who resonates with that frequency when they hear it. Like today, this morning, as I'm, as I'm in here and I'm sitting over here, I just suddenly had this awareness, and I was when the brother came up and says, says, this is like a royal procession today, and then I just had this sense that it's like the Holy Spirit was hovering, moving across this room, just like, and it feel like it's, it's even, I mean, it's even happening in waves as I'm standing up here, it's like from from this way. I mean, whatever need you've got in your body, in your life, whatever sense of lack that you carry right now, God wants to come in and just destroy that sense of lack with the fullness of His presence, and just sweep across this room. I mean, and just like just I feel like it's almost like we're sitting in a in a in a uh, the. the the shoreline of of the beach and just let the waves just kind of sort of like crash over you and roll over you as they just keep coming by. Here's the thing. It's not that it's not that you can get more of him. Okay. You've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness and you have the Holy Spirit without measure. You cannot get more of God. What you can get is more awareness of what you have access to. And there is there are moments here But within the middle of all of that, there are moments where God chooses within the course of time and history to somehow bring a, a spike in our awareness. These are moments where God touches us. They become memorial stones in our life. A moment, perhaps, that is a crossroads decision moment for you. And in that moment, it's like a lightning strike. You sort of feel like, whoa, God touched me in this moment. It's not that you weren't touched before, that you weren't touched after. It was, there was a convergence that happened where it was really necessary for you to know how present and how powerful he is upon you. And that single spike in your spiritual experience was not meant to be something that you just camp around for the rest of your life. It was literally meant to be something that becomes an ongoing lifestyle for you. Like you always know what you have aware uh, 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 access to. You all from now on, you always know you have access to this moment. Right? Right. So I feel like that's kind of happening in this room. It's happening as as, as like waves are like coming across this room. So I feel like as I'm talking today, there's something that's just going on in this room, in the Spirit. It's like the waves of the glory of God. Here's the glory of God. Moses goes to the mountain, he says this. He says this to God, show me your glory. You remember what God said? I'm going to make all of my goodness to pass before you, right? And then he follows it up with this phrase. God follows this up by saying this. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Remember that? Okay, that's what he says. When God says this, this is essentially what God is saying. Moses, you've asked to see my glory. I'm going to unveil goodness to you. But I just want to warn you right now, it's going to be a goodness that's going to offend you. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, is God saying, I can be as good as I want to whoever I want, and I don't have to ask your permission. So if you're really ready to see this, you're going to find yourself shocked by who I will be good to. It's an uncomfortable revelation when you realize God loves everyone you hate. It's an uncomfortable realization that God isn't tying His grace over your life and His love towards you to your re- repentance. I will have mercy on who I am. I will have mercy. I will have, I'll, however, I want to do it. And on the cross, He demonstrates this by saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Here's a Sean Anderson quote for you The last act of grace on the cross was to forgive our ignorance. Not give us grace on the basis of our repentance, but give us grace in spite of the fact that we were not. He initiates with that level of compassion and mercy. Why? Because I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And Moses, I don't have to ask your permission. And if you're still willing to see it, you just might begin to know what it means to be the light of the world. And Moses comes down from the mountain, literally glowing. All right. So who trembles at my word is those who who find themselves undone, vibrating in their spirit with the resonant frequency of heaven. All right. Uh, In verse uh, 17 of 65, he says, Behold, behold, Isaiah 65, 17, Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Think about that for a second. I think we often think that we're going to be left with the memories of things that bring us guilt, shame, pain, regret. The newness that God is actually appointing us for is a newness that so makes you completely new that you literally have no capacity to remember why you were fallen in the first place. right. Now, can I give you an offensive word here? Mary just texted me this this morning, and she said a thing that that would probably be considered to be heresy in many circles. But I said, yeah, it's resonating strongly with me. Right after God says this in verse 17, he says, Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and people for gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping, the sound of crying. Think about this. We think of this in terms of this is heaven. Like after the return of Christ, physical return of Christ, the the throne is established. Okay, think about this with me for just a moment. Watch what's about to happen here. No longer, verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of a hundred and one who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought to be accursed. Wait a minute. If this is heaven, why are people still dying? Maybe it's not. Maybe what God is building and creating here, maybe what he's revealing that he's building and creating, Tear down the temple and raise it again in three days and you and I are the temple. Maybe what he's building and creating is is not some heaven in another world region that we only get to access after we die, but it's actually meant to be that the kingdom of God so manifests in and upon and through us that we literally do bring in such an era of the reflection of heaven upon earth that it's just like Isaiah says, if you don't make it to a hundred, people will think, what is wrong with you? I don't even know what to do with that. All I know is it gives me something in this realm of living, in the generation that I'm in, to know that if I can steward, not that it's up to my efforts, but if I can surrender that place of obedience to steward what He is pouring out through us, that there is more that this earth has not seen yet. That even prior to he- the Bible says that when he appears, when we see him, we will be like him, For we will see him as he is. In other words, when he comes back to, to, to this world, how much is it going to look like home? You know, that's the meaning of the word apostle, by the way. The apostolo, it was a Phoenician naval term. It was a, uh, a guy named Cyrus came up with this idea when he had conquered the coastal regions all, all around the, the sea there and he had like, conquered all these cities. But Cyrus was a super particular guy. And, and he had a, a, a particular way he wanted everything. He liked certain colors. He liked certain scents. He liked, he liked to see certain things a certain way. And, and as he would conquer regions, he would not leave them unchanged. So when, when these regions get conquered, he basically would say, okay, we're sending an army out, but, but here's what we have. We have to have a, a, a person with authority. We're going to call him the apostolo. And the apostolo's job is essentially to spend time with the king. That's all he did. Watch the king, listen to the king, everything he likes, everything he's about, all of his values. And when the apostolo got ingrained into his very DNA, the heart and the desires of the king. Then he was sent out with a group who could a company of soldiers who could enforce all of his decisions and choices, builders, everything. And he would go to that city because now he was assigned to actually live out the rest of his days in that city. He'd step off the boat, step onto the shore of that city and look around. And he'd begin to immediately go, that doesn't belong, that doesn't belong. Take that down, build that up there, change that color to this. Because here was the deal. The apostolo knew that someday the king himself was going to come and see what was his. And if the apostolo had done his job when the king stepped off the boat and stepped onto the shores of the land and looked all around, that land would just look exactly like home. And Jesus says, he borrows this same term. He says, I'm sending you guys out as my apostolos. It's not so that you can build a website, print business cards, you know, and order people around. It's literally so that you can look around, so connected to the heart of the king who lives in us, dwells in us as his temple, that we can look around and we can go, you know, disease is allowed to be here, but it doesn't exist in the king's world. So we have legal authority to come against that. can look around this world and go, hmm, that doesn't look like heaven. And I know because the one that lives in me, I have the authority to step into an environment. And, And it begins spiritually, by the way, shifting the environment, shifting the atmosphere spiritually. And this is where we're just beginning to scratch the surface, not about building bigger buildings and building bigger sanctuaries. It's about building a people that literally reflect heaven on earth. Let me give you a super practical example right now. We have an invitation right now that we've never had in my lifetime. There are more jobs available in this country right now than have ever been available before. What would happen if the body of Christ would shift our motivation? And and listen, work to make money to pay the bills. I get that. Super important. Even in the New Covenant, says, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. It's kind of the way it works, right? But what if our motivation wasn't just to work to get money to pay the bills? What if we added a new motivation? And that is to bring the kingdom of God to every sphere of society. What if right now the body of Christ would fill every vacant spot in this? You'd be like, I ain't going to work at Cracker Barrel. Why not? Why not? Chili's is... They'll pay you fifty bucks to interview and give you a thousand dollars if you're willing to sign on and work there. At a Chili's. (laughs) I'm looking around right now and I'm seeing I'm seeing people who have built businesses out there going, help. And I'm thinking, Body of Christ, where you at? Where are you at? Fill those spots with the glory of God and such a measure of excellence in everything you wow. do as unto the Lord that you literally raise the standard of customer service in this nation higher than it's ever been before. I'm looking at how, how this pandemic came through and it literally took, uh, took out tons of, uh, of commercial real estate. People are now working from home. Entire high rises are empty. Office buildings, totally empty, completely dormant. They're they're thinking of like completely shutting down the Empire State Building because they don't have enough renters in it. The place is a ghost town. I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, hey, we've been so consumed as a church often with and I, it's in Pastor Charlie's heart so I can say this, But we and I built a church, right? So I'm talking to myself because I know how this feels. We've been so consumed with us building something that we built so that we can take the credit for what we did and point to that. But what if, what if God is about to pour His Spirit onto this nation in such a way that people are gathering in, in crowds bigger than buildings we have capacity for and maybe millions, tens, and hundreds of millions of square feet of commercial real estate suddenly is available for pennies on the dollar. Now, maybe perhaps uh, uh, ungodly businesses and business leaders have created the space to facilitate worship environments. Maybe it's been done for us. Can you see what's being prepared here? I'm telling you something here today. We're in an amazing time right now. All right, let me get to the verse that scares me. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Whew, not there yet. Oh. Verse 8 of chapter 66. This is. I'm leading up to it. Not there yet. Verse 7 says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a son who has heard such a thing, who has seen such a thing. Can a nation be born in a day? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? But as soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Just rabbit trail something here real quick. God refers, in Isaiah, God refers to his children by three names. He calls them Jacob, Israel, and Zion. Okay Jacob is deceiver, right? Jacob is is the false you, right? Zion and Israel are different. That's when God takes the name Jacob, sets it off to the side, and then he calls Jacob Israel. Now Israel is the masculine name for his children. Zion is the feminine name for his children. So he brings from deceiver to son, to bride, right? So that's what he's doing. He's bringing us to an awareness from deceiver to son to bride, right? Here's the thing. When God identifies himself, he says this. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. He doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Zion. He says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I'm going to redeem every part of you, even the deceiver. Even the deceiver. Listen to that. This is God saying, I am the God of the Jacob in you. I'm not just your God because you had an identity change. I was your God before, and you need to know, I've never not been your God. you begin to believe this, all your self-effort will just be pointless. Okay. It's not that you won't do anything, but you'll do it from a place of obedience and from surrender, not striving. Stop wearing yourself out with the fuel of your own ego. That was just fun to say. I don't know. I don't know what's (laughs) happening. Uh, All right, ready? Look at this. Look at this. It's good. It's good. It's a reverse offering. Whew. All right. Verse verse 22. Here Here's the verse that scares me. Mary Baker, this is for you. Oh, boy. For Just as a new heavens and a new earth, which I make, will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring in your name will endure. Whoa, whoa. Hey, quote, declare this over your family, all right? You say, well, Isaiah, that's old covenant. God gives Isaiah new covenant language all throughout Isaiah. But, r- but right about the halfway point of Isaiah 33, suddenly everything changes, and now Isaiah is prophesying new covenant language. It, 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 when you get to Isaiah 53, and he talks about Jesus, surely he has borne our griefs, he has carried, he has the, he, all these things, it talks about Christ, in the past tense, as if it's already happened. So he's talking to a people who understand New Covenant. In other words, on that side of the cross, they couldn't have understood a thing he was saying. So he was not just prophesying things that were to come. He was stepping into the time when they already had come, and he was prophesying to them then. So he trend- he's prophesying 700 years into the future. He's prophesying the fall of Jerusalem 150 years after he writes this. It happens exactly as he said it would. He prophesies the coming of the Messiah 700 years in the future. Show me somebody who's prophesying more than we can advance these days. It's like, if that prophecy doesn't come to pass, that guy's a false prophet. I'm like, hey, Isaiah prophesied centuries into the future. He gave words that you could not prove in his lifetime. Just a thought. <laughs> but you got to take me to lunch, so you might want to hang on to it, All right? So, <laughs> verse twenty-three. But verse twenty-two, I got to read it again. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. By the way, the word name in Hebrew culture means identity. It's the truth of who you are. And it's not a false identity. It's how he sees you. Your name, the truth of who you are will endure. This will help to make sense of a verse that's coming up. And it says, verse 23, and it will be from the new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath. Ready? All mankind will come and bow before me, says the Lord. Isaiah 45, Romans 11, Philippians uh, talks about this, quotes quotes, uh, Isaiah in this. And the one we like to quote all the time is in Isaiah 45, it says, That every knee will bow. Surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that, you know, uh, swear allegiance. And um, in the New Testament, they add the caveat to it that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, So the New Covenant brings fresh revelation to this word. It's lifted, in a sense, almost out of context, but expanded upon. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Here's an understanding I always had, right? When I look at this verse, I'm just like, I don't even know what to do with that, because that's just just an enormous response. It's like, wow, that's, I mean, I looked up the meaning of the word all, it means all. So... Like, thought I could maybe like you know get around that a little bit. So Anyway, but so but it says all right. So I always thought that that event was a singular moment in time that would collectively happen all at once, right? I think that's kind of the way we've pictured it: the saved and the lost all gather together before God, and sort of like you know the people who want to bow bow, and the other ones are maybe an angel behind them. They're like, get down there, right? Everybody's going to do it however it's been painted to you, okay? I'm not saying that's accurate. I'm just saying I think that's what a lot of people think. It's like, oh, no. Yeah, he really is Lord. I don't like it, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, you think that's kind of the way it works, but, but that's not what it says here. And this is really an important word here. He says, sure as I live, the new heavens, the new earth that I'm going to create will endure, and your offspring and your name will also endure. Now, the, the truth of what I'm building you to be and in you, it will not fail. Right? Okay, but then he goes on to say this. And from day to day and week to week, all of mankind will bow before me. You see it? It's not a singular event. It's an ongoing process. Some today, some tomorrow, some next week, some the week after that. And the promise he says here, two times in Isaiah and two times in the New Testament when he repeats this, is that there is such a move of God coming that it will literally impact every single person. Some people will be more stubborn than others. Some people will push back more than others. Some people will just run headlong into it. But he says, day to day, week to week, what is he building? He's building a kingdom He's building a people. He's building a family. He's—he's. He's, I love what Charlie says. If God was building something other than family. He would not have called himself father. That's what he's doing. He's building a family. It's a good dad. Really wants his kids back. And like any father would do with his kids, he looks at people and goes, "Hey, listen. I, you may not have mercy on my son, but I will. Why? Because he's my son. Yeah, but he wanted the inheritance from you while you were still alive. That's kind of an insult, that you know, really. And 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 why did you give it to him? I mean, what a weak father you are." Why would you do that? Why would you let your son take the journey without condemnation? Why? Because he knows even the hog pen of life will teach you things you would have never learned in the house. Will rip down that sense of that false identity to the point where now you're sitting there going, oh, I'm not worth anything anymore. What does the father think about you? Does he agree with that? No. The son tries not to be a son, doesn't change. That the father never stops being a father. And when the son comes back home, the son literally does not have a clue as to who he is. And the father doesn't have to look for the robe and the ring. It was always there and it always belonged to the son. Puts it on him, boom. What's happening here? Is this a forced bowing? No. This is a surrender to become who you've always been. It's a surrender to to let go of the false identity of of slavery that you had to lay hold of the truth of the sonship that belongs to you. It's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant. That's what God's doing. The record in the Scripture is a record of us moving from an Old Covenant into a New Covenant reality. Think of it like this. The children of Israel in Egypt knew they were coming out of slavery, but they didn't exactly know what that meant. They just got super excited. God says, eat a Passover. They ate a meal called the Passover because they were about to leave where they had been. They come together, they eat a meal, they go through the baptism of Moses, it's called the Red Sea. It's what the Bible calls it, the baptism of Moses, the Red Sea baptism. They come out on the other side, exactly 50. Everybody say 50. Fifty days later, they come to Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord descends on the mountain. They're given the law. Then they rebel against God. 3,000 people died. Old covenant. New covenant. Jesus, with His disciples, eats a Passover. What is He doing? He's inaugurating a new covenant. He's about to take us into another exodus, an exodus out of slavery and into sonship, out of an old covenant that made you a slave and into a new covenant that makes you a son. So he literally eats a Passover with the disciples, goes to the cross, but takes you and I with him, whether you like it or not, Whether you like it or not, you were taken with Him on the cross. What happened then? You went through a Red Sea baptism called His blood. Taken into the grave, out of the grave in resurrection power and newness of life. Exactly 50. Everybody say 50. 50 days later... The Holy Spirit, the glory of God, descends upon 120 believers in an upper room. How many people got saved that day? 3,000. What just happened? It's a reversal. See, what God is doing is He's reversing every moment of destruction that has ever happened in our history. Reversing it. Did you ever ask the question... Here's another great reversal. Did you ever ask this question, how in the world did the devil become the God, small g, of this world? Kind of interesting, because that's what the Bible calls him, the God of this world. How did this happen? If you go back to the garden when Adam and Eve fell, when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and here comes the serpent, they're having this whole—you know—three people, these these three characters in this play are apparently hanging out together. Because when God shows up to confront the issue, they're all together, and he basically says, first to Adam, what happened? Why does he go to Adam first? Why doesn't he go to the serpent? Why doesn't he go to Eve? They were kind of the major players in the story, but Adam here. He goes to him first. Why? Because he gave Adam the authority and the dominion first. Adam had it. So God goes to the one who had the responsibility. Adam. Adam, what happened here? Adam's at a crossroads. He could choose to take responsibility in the moment and keep that authority that belonged to him. But he can actually take and do something with that authority. He can jettison it and give it away. How is he going to do it? Through something called judgment and blame. And Adam tells the truth. He said, it's the woman you gave me. But the problem is, is he partners with judgment and blame. When he does that, the authority that he had from God, he hands to her. You'll never find yourself in a greater state of spiritual weakness than when you partner with judgment and blame. Now, God turns his attention to Eve. Why? Because she's got the authority. Eve, what happened? Eve can do the exact same thing. She can take it and say, you know what? My fault. I'm going to bear the responsibility and hang on to that authority it belongs to her. But instead, she says, the serpent tricked me. When she says that, what does she do? She's just partnered with judgment and blame. And when she does that, takes the authority and dominion and passes it on. God turns his attention now to the serpent and God begins to talk. As God talked, you remember what the serpent did? Nothing. And in silence, he essentially says, thank you very much. I'll take the responsibility, and with it, the authority. And in that moment, becomes the God, small g, of this world. Fast forward to Jesus. Jesus, standing before religious and political leaders who are demonically, satanically controlled And this is what they say to him. You say you're the Son of God. Is that true? What does Jesus do? Nothing. You say God's your Father. You know they can get you killed, right? Is that true? What does Jesus say? Nothing. The Bible says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before her shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. And in silence... He reverses the curse of the garden, exercises authority, takes the dominion back onto the cross, into the grave, and when he resurrects in newness of life, says this phrase, all, everybody say all, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It's the same all that means all. From day to day, from week to week, all of mankind will bow before me. Hmm. Tracy texted me this morning and says, if you are actually going to talk about this, can you please talk about the creepy verse 24 right after it? Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who transgressed against me, and their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched. they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. Okay, now stop with me for just a second. Listen. If all mankind is bowing before the Lord, who are they looking at? See, it would make sense if they said some, and then the others would be who they're looking at. But if all of mankind is bowing before the Lord, if all of mankind is impacted in this way, if, if all of mankind is touched by the, um, a move of God, then who are they looking at? I'd like to suggest to you that the, the, the thing that will not inherit the kingdom of God matter of fact, if you look up the original word here and it says, well, look at those men who transgressed against me, it's literally dead, corpse flesh. It's the thing that actually was crucified with Christ. It's your false identity. It's the identity that you can't carry into the kingdom that won't inherit the kingdom of God. You're literally going to look at your old self and go, wow, I couldn't drag that into the kingdom. You're going to have to be literally severed from every lie you've ever believed about yourself to see the fullness of the kingdom of God and what he has for you. He is firmly committed to executing, killing, and letting rot all of the false identities that you've ever drug before him and tried to convince him of who you are. It's why the Bible says, here's the identities that will not inherit the kingdom of God. It goes through a list of things we would typically call sin or identities. And then here's the crazy part. I'm sitting there looking at that list one day, and I'm thinking, my goodness, we all kind of fall in this list somewhere. I mean, it's a pretty ex- exhaustive list of people who've done things, I mean, bad, super bad things and eh, minor bad things. But nonetheless, it says these will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I'm saying, Lord, that pretty much leaves all of us out. And I felt the Lord say, I heard the Lord speak to my heart and say this. At any time, did I ever create any of these? N- no. God just wake up one day and say, I'm going to make a murderer today. I'm going to make an adulterer today. All of those are identities based on things you've done that actually cause you to believe a lie about who you are that God doesn't believe. In other words, you do something, you steal, boom, you're a thief. You kill somebody, boom, you're a murderer. That is now who you are, and it's based upon what you've done. And God says, these identities, these things will not... They're not people God created. They're identities of our own making. Can I take it even a step further? They're not identities that we even take to ourselves. We do an action, and other people watch you sin, and they assign an identity to you based upon what they see you do. These are costumes that we have actually put on other people and said this is who you are now we have an entire generations of people going i'm going to try this costume and this costume and this costume and this co- i'm going to try all these different costumes why because i don't know who i am the world is in an identity crisis and what is god saying here it, it's not an issue of sin why because he dealt with sin on the cross All sin was dealt with on the cross. So it's not an issue of a difference between sinner and saint. It's an issue between false identities and the absolute real of who you are. And God is firmly committed to severing you from the dead corpse of your old man and your false identities, even if somebody else put that identity on you. Why? Because he's interested in setting prisoners and captives free. Prisoners are in prison because of what they have done. Captives are in captivity because of what somebody else has done. And Jesus looks at you and goes, I don't care how you got in chains and how you got the chain of that identity on you, I want it gone. Why? Because I want all of you to be free. free. Free to what? Free to be who you really are, which is, you ready? In Christ in christ so what's going to happen all of mankind literally bows before the lord some a little faster than others but eventually every single person i don't know what you want to do with that people used to say back in bible college they say you don't create an entire doctrine around a single verse said how many verses do you have to create a doctrine around and this was the seminary rule three well we have four times in the bible it says this so i don't know what you want to do with that i'm listen I'm not saying I'm not preaching like some like weird weird spooky universalism everybody's in. Paul says it like this. Paul says it like this. Because we know the fear of God, we persuade men. But what are we persuading people with? We're persuading people with the revelation of the truth of who they are. We're persuading people by actually exalting Christ, letting Jesus be glorified. Because as we behold Him, we are transformed, changed. When we lift up Christ and we preach the gospel, when we preach Jesus above everything else, the faults you cannot stay. And for some of you, it might go kicking and screaming, but it can't stay for long. Let me lay on the plane with a super offensive thought. You ready? All right. There are graces and gifts that Christ has brought to the church that we have turned into movements that were never meant to be. In other words, we've actually taken the gifts from the giver and we've actually turned them into idols. You say, have we done that? Yeah, I think we have. And God is taking us through basically a divine reset back to the simplicity of the gospel and the absolute centrality of focused affection on Jesus. And from that focused affection, those gifts actually operate more freely. It's when we divorce the gift from the giver and we exalt the gift that we turn the gift into an idol. And let me just tell you two that have, have I think, have, they're kind of coming down in our day. Um, one, one is the prophetic movement. I don't believe that the prophetic was ever meant to be a movement. It's meant to be a byproduct of preaching the gospel meant to be a byproduct, an overflow of a life surrendered to the Holy Spirit, not a movement unto itself. The other one is healing. Healing is an absolute grace and a gift from God. And I'm part of the prophetic and I'm part of the healing crowd, that whole thing. I'll never stop prophesying and I'll never stop laying hands on the sick. But the minute that we turn the prophetic into the prophetic movement and the healing into the healing movement, we actually severed the gift from the giver, exalted the move and exploited it for the purpose of actually hyping the gift up and pushing the giver to the side. Right? How do you know this? Because uh, I just went, listen, if if I go and do a prophetic conference, it's packed. If I do a healing meeting, it's packed. If I say, we're going to open up the scriptures and talk about Christology and the person of Christ, 30 people will show up. Tell me we haven't done this. Back in Numbers, you guys remember the story of the children of Israel. They're out in the wilderness, and they start murmuring, complaining. As they release that sound that's contrary to the kingdom of heaven, snakes just start showing up and biting people, and they're dying. God says to Moses, he says this phrase, take and make a brass serpent, something in the form of a curse, hang it on a pole, put it in the middle of the uh, the land, and any person who looks at it will be healed. You guys remember that? It's an amazing Holy Spirit-inspired moment of of move of God that actually brought healing to a nation and saved the nation. You fast forward to 2 Kings 18, a thousand years later, God says to a king named Hezekiah, Hezekiah, there's a lot of idols in this land. I want you to tear them all down. So Hezekiah goes and starts taking down poles and statues and altars and all this stuff. He's taking all this down. There's a list of things that Hezekiah destroys. And in the middle of that list is a very fascinating piece of furniture. It says, and Hezekiah broke apart the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people had started offering incense to it. I'd like to suggest to you that at the Holy Spirit's prompting, Moses did a thing that sparked a move of God that actually was a byproduct of a surrendered obedience to the voice of the Lord that healed a nation through a move of healing that actually saved the people of God. And a thousand years later, the people had camped around that moment of the movement and had literally started offering incense to it, worshiping the movement more than God. I remember um, sitting down with R.W. Shambaugh years ago, shortly before he died, and he told the story about going with Kenneth Hagin. There was Hagen, I think, done it either here. Hagen had done this to confront William Branham, perhaps arguably the most radical healing evangelist in the past century. More miracles happened in Branham than just about anybody else. Crazy stuff. But the people who surrounded Branham had a- actually started exalting him to a place that was really, really idolatrous. He had moved from honor to idolatry in the minds of the people that followed him. Yeah, they thought he was Elijah. And the word to Shambog was this. And again, it's either Schambach or Hagen. You have to look this up. Google this. Is it was a Hagen, was it? He says, he says uh, God's taking you home you got 30 days to get your affairs in order, and God's taking you home. And Branham says, why? He says, because the people have made you an idol. And, And Branham says this, I didn't ask these people to worship me. And Hagen says, no, but you let them. You let them. We can take something anointed by God, a gift, a grace of God, even a person that's anointed by God, and we can move them from a place of honor to idolatry. How do we know when we do that? When a person can no longer be confronted or corrected. We've moved them from honor to idolatry. If you can be corrected, you can be trusted. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Died on Christmas Eve. So. So the prophetic movement. How about that one? Wow. And this last thing, this, with, with the election, the prophetic movement got decimated. I said, did it? Yeah. In, in the eyes of the next generation, it's lost all credibility. And the sad, thing, the sad thing is the lack of self-awareness among the prophetic movement means they're denying the reality of that fact. In other words, they don't even know it. When you've lost credibility and you don't know it, there's not much more irrelevant than that. Right? <clears throat> in other words, when you've lost the power of your voice to influence the next generation. Why? Because we elevated we elevated a gift and a grace of God from an overflow of preaching Jesus into a movement unto itself. I went to a prophetic conference, I can count on one hand the number of times Jesus was mentioned, I couldn't tell you that anybody actually cracked the Bible in the entire thing. Why? Because we've taken and we've we've actually based so much of our spiritual life on dreams and visions that have nothing to do with the scriptures and have nothing to do with Jesus. If you ever look up the term antichrist, it's a fascinating thing to do in the Greek. Antichrist doesn't mean opposed to Christ. You'd think it would mean opposed to Christ. Antichrist! But that's not the, what the word antichrist means. It's a spirit, and the word anti doesn't mean opposed to. It literally means, listen, instead of. In other words, Jesus is still a part of my life. I'm just going to move him. He's just set him off to the side where I'm going to focus on this for, for a while. That is what it means to be anti-Christ. The minute that he stops being the absolute focus. Now Paul, the Apostle Paul, my goodness, this guy had such a focus on Jesus, but the overflow of his life was really all the things, the gifts that we want to see happen. Like for example, uh, baptism, baptizing people in water, super good and super important. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 17, Paul says this, he goes, I only baptized two of you, and I'm really glad that's all I baptized. I'm glad I didn't baptize the rest of you. He said, because, listen, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to what? Preach the gospel. Paul says this. I'm like, wait, Paul, the, the mandate is to baptize. He goes, yeah, that's essentially saying that's included in there, but that's not the first thing I'm here to do. It will never be the first thing I'm here to do. I am here to do one thing. Everything else that happens flows out of that one thing. And that is to preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, not just for you, but as you. The gospel of the kingdom through the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. And we'll baptize some people too, maybe. He literally says, Christ didn't send me to do that, but to do this. It's when we put the that in the place of this that we get messed up. And right now, we're going through a divine reset where we're coming back to that. What about casting out demons? I've, I've, had, I've had issues with deliverance ministries for years. I'm going to get a little ornery here for a second. I've had issues with deliverance ministries for years. I sat down with a popular deliverance minister who does sold-out conferences, ticketed events to deliverance conferences, right? Entire conferences on de- deliverance. I, if I mentioned their name, every one of you would know them. A- and I said, hey, quick question. What happens if the demons don't show up? because you sort of count on that, right? Like, if nobody gets delivered, how good of a conference was it? We don't care about the methodology. We just want to see people flop on the floor, you know, or, you know, vomit everywhere or whatever. Oh, then it's a successful conference. We'll thank the demons. They should be on your payroll. (laughs) Tell me, tell me the demons are so stupid and ignorant that they don't know they're about to be cast out. Why wouldn't they hang out in the, in the parking lot, you know, smoke cigarette? I don't know, whatever demons do, right? Why don't they hang out in the parking lot until their human comes back out and they can jump on them again? That would make way more sense unless they like the attention. I think the only demons that ever came, in conf- came in, into the presence of Jesus only came to the presence of Jesus because they weren't aware about, of who they were about to confront. I don't think the devil knew who Jesus was. Why? Because the Bible says so. So if they'd not known who Jesus was, they would never crucify the Lord of glory. He was so off the grid, under the radar, out of their... Okay, so deliverance. Paul, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are walking along, and they're what? Preaching the gospel. A demon-possessed girl decides she's going to do marketing for them. Here's the funny part of the story. It says, after many days, Paul, being greatly annoyed turns and casts a demon out of this woman. In other words, he wasn't there to do deliverance. He was there to do one thing. Preach the gospel. What happened with the deliverance? It became a byproduct of doing this first. Above everything else. What about raising the dead? Paul is preaching the gospel one night. The last story I'll tell. Paul's preaching the gospel is a guy named Eutychus, and he's sitting up in the window, right? And he's hanging out, and Paul's going on and on. This guy falls asleep, falls out of the window, bam, hits the ground, and dies. Paul goes out and raises the guy from the dead. Do you remember what Paul did? Back upstairs, <laughs> finish the message. I picture Paul being annoyed, like, Oh, this is the only thing people are going to remember about this entire night. <laughs> Why? Because he wasn't there to raise the dead. He was there to preach the gospel. Raising the dead was just a natural byproduct of preaching the gospel. And I feel like what we're going through right now is like, it's. I don't want to demote the gifts. I don't ever want to reduce the value of healing and the prophetic in any sense. What I want to do is elevate Christ back to his proper place as front center focus above it all that's the focus of it and here's the deal you say how do i take this message and go out how how do i like give this away to the world i got one commission for you preach the gospel Proclaim the gospel. Declare the gospel. Let Christ alone be high and lifted up and exalted. Then we become the temple. Then we become aware of who we are in Him, who He is in us. We become aware of His presence consistently. Listen, I, I hate the idea that Christ consciousness has been hijacked by by a non Christ centered movement because it belongs to the church. You and I are supposed to consistently be conscious and aware of the mystery of the gospel being Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 20, in that day, you're going to know. Here's a revelation that's available to you. I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. You don't disappear in this equation. You are the kingdom God is building because the kingdom is a people. It's a people. That's who we are. That's who you are. Listen, here's the deal. You say, Bill, when you talk about this all thing, if everybody's going gonna, to gonna come and bow before the Lord, what's the point of preaching? That's not why I mention it. And I don't think that's why the Bible puts it in there. He puts it in there so you and I will never give up on anybody. Listen to this. It's not some universalist mantra. This is this is you and I losing the right to look at any person and think that they're beyond the grace of God. like. Oh, well, I'm going to give up on that one. I'm just going to go to the ripe fruit. No, Jesus said under a new covenant, the fields are all white unto harvest. Everybody is harvestable right now. I don't care who they are, they're worthy of hearing the gospel. And sometimes I think we only preach to the people that we think are going to you know, be receptive because when they come to the altar and receive Christ in our meeting, man, that looks good. I just feel like God is raising up a body who's putting Jesus back in the center of it all. Preaching the Gospel. Cracking open the Scriptures. Putting a feast of the meat of the Word of God out there and inviting people to come to the table. And some are going to come a little at a time. Some will come day by day. Some will come week by week. But don't you give up on anybody. Give the Gospel And can I tell you, if we begin to do this, I believe we'll see more accurate prophecy, legitimate healing, and signs and wonders than we've ever seen before. Stand with me this morning. Mm. Jesus. Okay, I I made it through half of that message, so I'm going to have to come back in another six months and preach the other half. Put your hands up. Get your lightning rods up. Lightning never strikes a rod hanging on the ground. Holy Spirit. In a posture of surrender, we just stand before your presence. We stand in your presence. We stand as a temple of your presence. So right now, we surrender everything that we are not. Everything that we are not gets ripped away right now. (laughs) <laughs> every false identity that we've drugged in here, kicking and screaming, gets ripped away right now. Whew. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence and your fire to move through this room. Ignite nuclear dynamos of glory that know what they carry. And whether anybody around them knows it or not, You're going to start seeing mountains move. You're going to start seeing mountains move. God, we just tremble at the frequency of heaven. We tremble with the resonant frequency of heaven, the resonant frequency of heaven, the resonance of heaven. Take your hands that are up in the air and bring them down. Let's create a grid, (laughs) a power grid. Put them on the shoulder of a person next to you. Holy Spirit, as we connect today as a family, as we connect today as a kingdom family, may you give us a revelation of a goodness that offends us. And Lord, may the sound that we make from our blood, from the depth of our being, may be a sound that reflects your world. Jesus we invite you to walk among us to lay your hand upon each of us just a picture Jesus just walking into this room and just laying his hand on you he's omnipresent he's omniscient he can do it all over this room at the same time thank you Jesus by faith, receive the touch of the Lord right now. By faith, just receive the touch of the Lord right now. By faith, receive the oil of heaven that pours over you right now. Whew. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for tuning in to today's message from Identity Church. To know more about us, go to IdentityChurch.net, where you'll find resources such as a calendar, media, and upcoming events. You may also download an app for your mobile device from the Apple App Store or Google Play. Then from your mobile device, you can hear our messages, read from the Bible, take notes, connect with us on the social media, and even pay your tithe. Again, thank you for tuning in to today's message from Identity Church.